Well, it is good to see all of you folks today. If you're a guest, I'm the pastor. My name's David. We're so glad you're here. You're always welcome. Uh, anything that pertains to you, love to have you. Uh, we're in we're in the season that's Easter. Easter is on March 31st this year. You know, that's 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 next week. No, that's three weeks. What is next? Oh, next week's time change. I think next week time change. So you know, just think about that. Well, I don't know what the, I don't even know what we're changing it to. I'll just show up. It's like four or five, and just hope for the best. But we're just glad you're here. We're we're in our Easter series entitled uh, What is it? The Journey of the Cross. And uh, you know. When you think about the journey of the cross, when I think of the cross, I think of the cross event. Not just the death, but the resurrection. It goes together. And I think of the significance and the meaning of all of that. And that's what the cross is, is the significance and the meaning of that death and that resurrection. The talk of the journey, you know, from the perspective of Jesus, you know, the journey, you know, we could say it begins at Christmas, and it does. We could say the journey begins... You know, in the ministry of Jesus started, you know, his baptism, you know, absolutely. Uh, we could talk about the journey beginning, you know, and the triumphal entry. But for the purposes of our ser- sermon uh, series this, this month, what I'm really focusing on is just a few hours around the cross. That part of the journey of those, of those few hours. And, and today we're going to start with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and, uh, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 26. And I, I think it's easy for us in, in all the things surrounding what happens at the cross, is to, to know this is important, but to kind of overlook the real significance of it. And so what I want you to see today is a message that I've entitled, But As You Will, coming from Matthew chapter 26. And as we come to this message today, what, what I want you to see is, is so critical that sometimes we don't really fully grasp it or, or we maybe just kind of just take it for granted, don't even understand it. But what I want you to see is this, that uh, there came a time for Jesus when there was no turning back from the cross. You need to understand that there were, the one who decided Jesus was going to the cross was Jesus. It wasn't Judas. It wasn't the Jewish leaders. It wasn't the Roman leaders. Ultimately, it was Jesus. And there was a time for Jesus when there was no turning back from the cross. So we're going to begin uh, the message today looking at a, a garden view. Uh, I don't know if you have ever noticed this. Uh, when, you, when you book a hotel... Especially if it's a resort, sometimes they have levels of rooms. Jim knows that. If you stand in some place semi-nice, they'll have that oftentimes at a destination. Like you can get a parking lot view, that's the cheapest. And then maybe you get the ocean view, that's really nice. Somewhere in there, there's the garden view, and that's kind of in the middle. Some of you ladies are kind of looking at your husband like, we've never had more than a parking lot view. <laughs> I'll tell you this, ladies, you need to know that but my wife, I always got her the finest view possible. I didn't, money was no object. So you just remind your husband that fib that I just told uh, in doing that. But what we, what we have, what we have today in all seriousness is we have Jesus in the garden. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. It's right outside Jerusalem. It's a place where undoubtedly he and his guys went a lot. Probably every time they were in Jerusalem, maybe they spent the night there, some camping. You know, it was probably owned by a close friend or at least someone who supported Jesus. It was, it was an important place for Jesus. It was a place probably where they talked and they gathered and he, and he taught them and they shared and they prayed. And, and, and this, where we're coming today is huge. Because today, just hours from the cross, on this message we're looking just hours from the cross, what we're seeing for Jesus is the garden is a place of struggle. And we're, we're, we're on the outside. We're getting the privilege of looking in to see Jesus and his Father, 
To see God the Son and God the Father communicating over something that has eternal significance for us. And it's this struggle for Jesus. And I want you to understand, this struggle is not a struggle between Jesus and God. It's not a struggle between the Son and the Father. It's not a struggle between Jesus and Satan. If you've ever seen um, the movie Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ, you know, he, it's a great movie, but he depicts it as a struggle between Jesus and Satan. It is not. This is not a struggle between the two natures of Jesus. You know, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to fully wrap ourselves around the fact that Jesus is fully God, fully man. You know, he's deity and he's humanity, but he's not, he's not 50-50. He's not part-part. He's in his totality. All of us, our nature is whoever we are in our totality. And for Jesus, it's different because in his totality, he was God. And that's sometimes hard for us to wrap around. This is not the struggle there. And what we need to see that this is a struggle, not even about whether or not Jesus is the way of salvation. He's already said he's the way of salvation. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. He's already determined that. This struggle is not about whether or not Jesus is going to save. It's not even whether or not he has to die and be raised back. It's whether or not the cross and all its significance has to be the way. In other words, it's the struggle about the way of that salvation. It's the struggle about what it means for him to die on the cross. But understand this, this is his decision. It's not the decision of Judas who's going to betray him. It's not the decision of, of the religious leaders or of the Romans. This is his decision. And what we need to see here is that in the garden, Jesus confirms the certainty of the cross. Understand this. When you walk away from this message today, know that when Jesus walked away from the garden, he already determined in his mind he was going to the cross. He confirms the absolute certainty of that cross. Verse 36 says this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here. Well, I go over there and pray. Now, they, they have been together for a while now, that day. That day, you know, they started off, you know, when the Passover, early, hours earlier. You know, they had gone to that upper room, and Jesus took the 12 guys, including Judas. And he was making really, and we sometimes need to understand, we miss it. He was making one last effort to help Judas, not to keep him from betraying him. The Jews were going to kill Jesus no matter what. But for the sake of Judas, not for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of Judas, Ju Jesus is trying to say, man, this is your last chance. He washes the feet of all those guys. Then they eat the Passover meal together. And as they're eating the Passover meal, he begins to warn them that he's going to be betrayed. And Judas kind of knows what's going on and, and looks at him and, and kind of is in me. And, and Jesus says, you know it is. And so Jesus says, Judas, just go, man. You've determined in your heart to do it. Just go do it. And he sends him away. And then with those 11 remaining guys, he has what we call the Last Supper. And then we celebrate that at what we call the Lord's Supper. And then after that was through, John tells us he began to just teach these guys. This was his last chance to teach them. Because, you know, when they walk away from that room, he's going to the cross, and then he's going to die, be resurrected. And after the resurrection, he's not going to be with them that much. You'll see him from time to time. This is his last chance to really teach them. And so he's with them, and he's teaching, and all his focus is on them. And then he has that wonderful prayer, the high priestly prayer in John 17, and then they leave. 
And they come to the garden. And he's been there a lot. And he knows that at some point, Judas is going to bring everybody with him to get him. And so he takes the guys and he says, I want you just to wait right here. He takes eight of the 11. Because now it's not about these guys anymore. Now it's about Jesus. At this moment, whatever else happens is about Jesus and Jesus and the Father. And he says, you guys, you may just wait right here. Verse 37 says that he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. He took the three guys closest to him. You know, he took Peter. Listen, Peter, Peter was going to be the leader of this band, period. I, I'm amazed at the number of people who question whether or not Peter truly was the leader. Did they recognize that? Of course he was the leader. Come on, man. Read the New Testament. It's obvious. He was the leader. Jesus knew that. He had the sons of Zebedee, that's John and James. They were brothers. They were cousins of Jesus. So Jesus took the three guys closest to him. He took Peter. He took his cousins, who he grew up with, who he played with, whom he had known all his life. He took these three guys. They went a little on. And it says, he began to be grieved and distressed. The word grieved means to be brokenhearted, to be full of sorrow. Some of you know what it's like to feel unbelievable grief. All of us at some time will experience it. It's a pain that is just won't go away. To be distressed is a sense of being hopeless almost. These two words together speak of devastation. Has there ever been a point in your life where you were devastated? Through no fault of your own. There was nothing you could do to stop it, nothing you could do to change it. But in that moment in your life, you were absolutely devastated. That's Jesus at this moment. Verse 38, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved even to the point of death. Remain here. Keep watch with me. My soul, the soul is the, the real you, is the who you are. Whatever you are as you express it, it comes from your soul. He says, listen, man. My soul is grieved. I'm hurting to the point of death. It means I can't grieve anymore. He says, you guys remain. Keep watching. In other words, he said, you guys, you just you stay right here. He took them a little bit further. The three closest guys. He didn't even ask them to pray. He didn't tell them what's going on. They should have had a sense of it. He said, listen, I need you guys just to keep watching a little bit with me. I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to pour my heart out to the Father. But there's nothing you can do about it. There's no way you can change it. Even your prayers, you're not going to make a difference. I just need you to keep watch. Sometimes in our life, we're going through something so difficult, so hard, that we know that we have to go through it by ourselves, that no one can do anything. No one can change any part of it. And sometimes all we want are those people closest to us just to be there. Guys, I just, I just need to know you're supporting me. I just, need, I just need to feel your presence. There's nothing you can do. You can't change it. I just need you there. That's Jesus. Guys, I just, I just need you. Be right here with me. And then comes a verse that, you know, when you read it in the story, you know, and it's kind of important, but maybe, maybe we don't fully grasp the depth of this verse. For in this verse is describing the moment, the moment when Jesus has to make a decision, the decision that determines whether you and I will ever be saved. This is the moment he determines that. 
Verse 39, it says, He went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face and prayed. And he was saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass to me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He went a little farther. I remember one time hearing a message entitled, He went a little further. Jesus always went a little bit further. He went a little beyond, not far, it's not a big garden. And he just collapsed. It fell on his face. Normally when you prayed, you prayed standing. Or you might pray sitting. We would say kneeling. But he just collapsed. As far as we know, this is the only place that he, at least recorded in Scripture, that he fell on his face. He was just bowing before the Father. And as he knelt there, or laid there, and he bowed before him, he says, My Father. Leon Moore says, literally it means Father of mine. You look at the prayers of Jesus. And all the time that he prays, he's really praying for us. It, that, you know, to help us, for an example, the model prayer, our Father in heaven, he calls him our Father. There are times that he'll call upon him, the Lord, or our Father, you know. He prays, he even says, you know, Father, I don't need this, this is for their benefit. <laughs> There's that one prayer, he says, God, I don't need to talk to you. These guys, they don't know what they're doing, so I want them to hear this. That's some of his prayers. But this time, this prayer is for him. He's not praying for you. He's not praying about life. This is him and God, his son and the Father. And he says, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup just pass from me. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus has always known why he came and that he's going to the cross. This is, this is not a prayer. I mean, the phrase, if it is possible, is conditional. It means, you know, is it possible? The word possible is a word that speaks with the idea of ability. It's similar. It comes from the same word family as the word for power. And it's the idea of raw ability. It's, that, it's within your ability, Father. In your ability can something happen. And, and, and you need to understand that, that Jesus, Jesus is not arguing against the will of God. That this is God the Son praying to God the Father. It's hard sometimes. We talk about wrapping ourselves around the nature of Jesus, fully God, fully man, but we've got to wrap ourselves around the Trinity, that there is but one God, but he has three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, that God is a unity. It is the same nature, but here the Son is praying to the Father. And he's saying, is there possible for this cup to pass? Now, what is the significance of the cup? The cup always signifies what it holds. For instance, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we had those, we had those little plastic cups we use, you know. Um, some of them fancy highfalutin churches use glass cups, but we can't trust y'all with glass, so we use plastic. <laughs> I voted paper, but we don't think it would hold the juice for long enough. And the symbolism is not that little piece of plastic. It's what's inside it. It's the juice and what it symbolizes, the blood. So what does the cup symbolize? Well, understand, Jesus... It's always been the will of the Father. Jesus has always known. It's, it's not, he's not, the cup doesn't signify, you know, Jesus not wanting to die. Our people say, you know, Jesus didn't really want to die on the cross. Well, Jesus always knew he was going to die. He, in fact, he would talk about, I'm going to die and be raised back to life. He talked about his resurrection all the time. And so Jesus had told his guys, you're going to die for me. And all these guys would die except John. John would be tortured and suffer. But the remaining, those 11 guys, 10 of those guys would suffer and die. His brother James would die for him. Peter, I mean, Paul would suffer immeasurable torture and die. I mean, for 2,000 years, Christians have died for Jesus. 
He tells us that is the possibility for some. He said that's the reality. So Jesus can't possibly be concerned just about death. He can't be saying, I'm afraid of dying. I really want to die. That's not it. What happened when he was on the cross? Well, we understand and we know from the balance of the New Testament, from the Gospels, that Jesus became something he wasn't before. When Jesus came to this earth, he became something he wasn't before. He became flesh. He had always been the Son. He'd always been the second person of the Trinity for all eternity. Now he became something he had ever been before, flesh. But in coming, becoming flesh, he wasn't a sinner. He never sinned. He didn't have the nature of sin. He was tempted to sin, but he never sinned. But on the cross, he became something he had never been before. He became guilty of sin. Not his sin. He wasn't a sinner or sinful, but he became sin. In other words, we're taught when on the cross, Jesus became sin, whatever sin is. But in that rebellion against God, that's what he became. And when he became sin and he died for us, he took the price of sin that you and I should take upon himself. And it's not just the dying and the pain. He tells us later on, we see, we'll see this in a few weeks when we, when we get to him on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he took was God abandoning him. Now, I'm not going to preach that message yet. I'll preach that in a few weeks. But he, he took the abandonment, the forsakenness of God. In other words, he took the price of hell. And on the cross, Jesus experienced an eternity of hell. I've heard people say, you know, when Jesus died, he went to hell. He didn't go to hell when he died. It's not taught in the New Testament. People just make that junk up. On the cross, he experienced hell. And he knew that was going to happen. And he said, I know I'm the way of salvation. I don't know. I may even have to die. But do I have to become sin? Do I have to be separated from you? And then he said, but it's not my will. He said, but as you will. God, as. Father, as you will. This is the way. And this is the way we're going to do it. The way of God always involves our salvation. The will of God always involves our salvation. And Jesus was always in tune with the will of God. He never had to be convinced to do his will. In fact, he said, I've come to do the will of my Father. But he has to know, this is the will. The will is people be saved, but is this the way? And I guess it's the way. As you will. And then we're told he goes back to Peter, James, and John. And they were sleeping. Been a hard day and long day for them. They didn't fully grasp everything, and Jesus says, Could you not just stay awake a little while? Come on, guys, I need you. Then he goes back and he prays. And in verse 42, here's what he says He went away a second time, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, once again, he says, Father, if this can't, but only here the word if really kind of means since. He said, Father, since, since your will can't be accomplished unless I drink of that cup, well, that's what I'm going to do. Always your will be done. In the model prayer, what did Jesus say? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, we're going to do it your way. And God, God's, 
God's will for us is our salvation. It's always been that. Whatever else you do when you try to understand the will of God, understand it always involves salvation. Jesus said, that's it. And if this is, if this is the way we got to bring your salvation, we're doing it. In the first prayer, Jesus said this. If this is the only way for your will to be done, then we'll do your will. In the second prayer, he said, since this is the only way, yeah, we're going to do it. And at this moment, Jesus decided there's no way but the cross. And he was the one in control, not Judas, not Pilate, not Caiaphas. If he decided not to go, there's not a thing they could have done about it. He could have called down thousands of angels to end the whole thing. He says, no, I'm going, and it's my decision, and it was his decision to go to that cross. And this is the view we get into the garden. Which brings you to the second thing I really want to talk to you about for a few moments. And that's a couple of questions that might need to be answered. There's a lot of questions we could ask about this. But for me, to kind of come to mind, the first question is this. Was there tension between the Son and the Father over the cross? Was, was, was there tension? Because it kind of looks like it. It kind of looks like, you know, you know, sons and fathers sometimes have a little tension between them on earth. But understand, it's, really, it's not a tension. Jesus always knew he was going to die and be resurrected. I mean, he taught that. I mean, he said that all the time. In fact, he said it just a couple of days earlier to, these, you know, to, to the Jewish religious leaders. They were all concerned about it. He said, destroy the temple in three days. You know, it'll be raised back up. He always talked about his death and resurrection. I remember hearing Andy Stanley, who's the pastor of North Point Community Church. I've heard him say this a couple of times. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but it's brilliant in its simplicity. Stanley says, if a guy can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, you ought to do whatever he says. I'm like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if Jesus predicted his death, and he did, and he predicted that three days later God would raise him back to life, and he did, he pulled that off. Why wouldn't you do anything Jesus says? I mean, Jesus always knew that. The issue was paying the price for sin. How, how exactly is the price for sin paid? See, here's the thing. Salvation cannot occur without paying the price of sin. And you and I need to pay for it. It's our sin, but we really can't. If you and I got to pay for it, that takes an eternity to do. See, here's the problem for us. It's always been the problem of humanity. We want to be God. We want to be the God of our own lives. I've shared this with you countless times. The basic sin, go back to Genesis 3. What did the devil say to, to Eve and Adam? You'll be like God. You, you can eat that tree. You'll be like God. And we're like, yeah. I want to be like God. And all sin is us just wanting to be the God of our own lives. It's really what it boils down to. And we can't be God. We always fail at it. And because we want to be God, we rebel against the one true God. We spend our life rebelling against the one true God. And we can't pull that off. And so we become something. We become sinners. It's not just that there are acts of sin. The acts of sin are symptomatic of your real problem. You've rebelled against God. And so you need to pay for your sins. But only God can do that. And since you've already proved you ain't God, you can never do that. But he did. That's an amazing thing to think that God did that 
for you and me. Which brings me to the second question. Why can't God save us some other way? I hear that a lot. That's a 2,000-year-old that's question, man. It's always been around. And we live in the world today with moral relativism and syncretism. I talk about these a lot. Moral relativism is the, is the concept there's no objective reality, you know. There's no God, there's no Bible, you know, political statement, the Constitution isn't, you know, the objective reality. In other words, people have had this idea, you can do whatever you want. You create your own reality. You see examples of this all the time. And, and if you get to create your own reality, you're never wrong. And if you get to create your own reality, you never sin. You never do any of that. You're exactly the way you need to be. And so in their minds, well, if I want to get to God, why can't I just create my own way? Even in churches we see that now. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that there are actually people, there's some in our city, who believe there are more than one way to God. Oh yeah, there's got to be more than one way to God. There's all these other religions and philosophies. People can't be wrong, can't they? Understand this. All other supposed ways to God are created by the very people who rejected God to begin with. You understand that, right? All these ways to God didn't come from God. They come from the people who think they're God and reject Him. It's kind of like someone being convicted of a crime and getting to determine their sentence. We don't allow that. Well, it may be getting to a point where some people are allowing that, I guess. But we know you don't get convicted of a crime. What do you think you ought to do? Nothing. I mean, we, we don't allow that. I, I hear sometimes the comment that, you know, God is cruel. How is God cruel? I mean, think about it. We've rebelled against God. We've rejected him. We want to be God. And then what does God do that's so cruel? Oh, yeah, he decides to save us anyways. And since we can't say ourselves, he sends Jesus, the Son of God. God becomes one of us. And becoming one of us, he dies for us. How is that cruel? I mean, you understand God. I mean, we could God the Father, God the Son. I get it, but still God. God dies for us. God decided that. Jesus like, yeah, here are my options. Okay, I'm going to go do this. How is God cruel when God dies for us? You know what's cruel? Cruel would be for God to allow you to be saved by some way outside of faith in Jesus. That's cruel. Cruel is the idea that Jesus, kneeling here in the most emotional moment of his life, laying right on his face, says, is there any other way besides me becoming sin for people to be saved and God says, no, there isn't. The father says, no, that's it. He does it. And then the father says, you know what? I changed my mind. I think I'm going to allow all these people just to create their own religion, and I'll save them anyways. That would be cruel. It would be cruel for Peter and James and Paul and all those believers to be tortured and killed for their faith. It would be cruel for the 2,000 years of Christianity and the zillions of Christians, including those today, who were tortured and who died for their faith because they refused to reject Jesus, to find out. You didn't have to do that after all. You could have come some other way. That would be cruel. It's not God who is cruel. It is we 
who are cruel. It is God who is loving. It is God who is kind. And it is God who is holy and merciful. And it is God who provided a way for our salvation. A way that cost God, the Son, his life. See, the journey of the cross was the journey of a holy and loving God paying the price of our sin for our salvation. That's what he did. And it's at this moment in the garden that Jesus says, your will be done. This is what we're doing. I began the message by saying, there came a time for Jesus when there was turning back from the cross. And this was the time. The time that he ultimately decided he was going to go and die for us because there was no other way for us to be saved and our salvation was the will of the Father. So he gave his life for you and all he asks in return is that you give your life to him. That you will trust him. That you will admit and acknowledge that you can't save yourself and admit and acknowledge that he did pay the price for all your sin and your rebellion and your inability to be God. And that in acknowledging it, you turn away from that and you turn to him and say, I'm going to take my life, Jesus, and I'm going to give it to you because of all that you gave to me. And so that's where you're at. You've got to make a decision just like Jesus. He decided to give his life for you. Or are you going to give your life back to him? If you've not done that, you need to do that. You need to trust Christ to be your Savior. In just a moment, as some of us stand here, if you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, you can come and give your life to Jesus. You can give your life to Jesus where you are. You can do it right where you're sitting. That's fine. But you need to give your life to Jesus. And if you want to come talk to us, you can. If you want to pray with us, you can. If you want us to pray about somebody for you, we can. And if you want to join our church, whatever, you can do all of those things. But understand this. When you walk out of this place today, understand you need to walk out of here knowing that Jesus paid the price of your sin. And you need to walk out of here trusting Jesus who paid the price for your sin. And so, Father, as we come now, in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, sometimes for things we hard to understand, I get it, hard to grasp, the reality is Jesus did die for us. And he willingly gave his life. It was the decision he made. It was not forced upon him. He did it. And God the Son did the will of God the Father because God loves us. And in turn, Father, we can show our love to him and give our life to him and trust him to be our Savior. I pray we do that.